Welcome to episode 112. I am so psyched about this episode. I have been wanting to chat with Disney legend Rolly Crump for some time now, and although we weren't able to get together in person, I was super thankful that he and Marie were gracious enough to chat on the phone with me for a while about growing up, uh, working for Walt, working at WED. I even learned that Rolly and I share one of my loves outside of Disney, which was really cool for me. It was a really fun chat that honestly didn't even begin to scratch the surface of things I wanted to bring up, but I wanted to be respectful of Rolly and Marie's time, so I hope I get an opportunity like this again in the future so we can chat about those things a little bit more. A uh, quick note before we jump into the episode, one of the things that I admire so much about Rolly is how candid he is, but while we were talking, there may have been a word or two that some parents listening with their kids may not want them to hear. At the same time, I wanted to be respectful of my conversation with him, so there are two versions of this episode. If you're just getting the straight download, you will be getting a filtered version that will have blips of silence inserted where those words show up, but if you want to listen to or download the unfiltered version, you can get it by going to podcasters.com slash 112. If you are already listening to that version, then you can just ignore everything I just said in that section because because you probably you, you got it already support for podcasters is brought to you by Amazon before your next purchase we would love it if you went to podcasters.com slash Amazon first and clicked on the big Amazon button if you do that we earn a small commission from that sale and every bit of that goes back to help the podcast to everyone already using our link for their purchases, thank you very much for your added support. We truly appreciate it. Another great way to help is to become a patron of our podcast via Patreon. Through Patreon, you can make a one-time, weekly, or monthly monetary contribution to help out the podcast. To find out how or for more information, just go to podcasters.com and click on the Patreon logo. Finally, you can find us on the webs by searching for Podcateers on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, and YouTube. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe to all of those for updates. That's going to be enough from me. Here we go with episode 112, our chat with Disney legend, Rolly Crump. This is our podcast. It's about three guys that love Disney technology, art, and food. This is Podcateers. Okay. <clears throat> well, hello, okay. Rolly. How are you? I'm fine, sir. How are you? I'm well. Uh, I was just trying to help my wife get the kids out. She's getting them prepped up for back to school, so they're heading out to oh, buy school oh, supplies and clothes and all that good stuff. Yeah, all that good stuff was right. Yeah, so she's about to go deal with a three-year-old and a six-year-old at Target. So we'll see how that goes for her. <laughs> uh, that, keep, that keeps your hands full. Yeah, right? <laughs> How's the heat treating you? Oh, good. <clears throat> We're, uh, Life's been good. The heat. You, oh, you, the heat. That sucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys are down in, in uh, Southern California near San Diego, correct? Yes, right. Okay. We're, uh, I'm actually a hop, skip, and a jump from where you, I believe, were born in Alhambra, correct? Right. So the heat is killing us right now. So growing up, you just like to play around with anything and everything. How would you describe growing up? Well, I'll tell you what. There's a, a 
kind of a kind of a, kind of a cute story about that. <clears throat> I uh, I started drawing as soon as I was three years old, and I loved to draw. And so my mom made sure that uh, she had pads and pencils for me to draw. And so I enjoyed drawing. But the <clears throat> the whole secret was the radio, because uh, I used to listen to the radio every night. I mean, afternoon when I got home from school. And the thing about the radio was your imagination had to get the pictures of what you were listening to. So the radio was a very important part of my life. And it really, really helped me because I, it did cre- help me create one hell of a piece of imagination to work with. Mm. So I loved that. And being that I, the interesting thing about it was I just loved drawing all the time. So I never got tired of drawing. I, I couldn't wait to do another drawing. So my mom did buy these little tablets for me to draw in. And we we still have a couple of them, which is kind of great. Oh, wow. And I look back on it, and I thought, I did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a pretty famous picture of you and a couple of other Imagineers at WED uh, where you are in top physical condition, sir. Oh, yes, I was. <laughs> Were you a big sports guy growing up? No, not really. I played basketball in high school. I was on the C team, and uh, I was on the track team, which was the D team. So, yeah, I uh, I can't say that there was much in the way of activity in those days. You know what happened was I was kind of a skinny little guy, and for some reason I uh, well, it's kind of another story about how I started to develop myself. Was I uh, was working on my aunt's farm one one summer, and the tractor ran over my leg, Whoa. and so it crushed my ankle. So I could hardly walk when I came back. I think I was 14 years old. So the first thing my mom did was sign sign me up to Vic Tanny's gym. And so I started working out at Vic Tanny's gym to bring my leg back. And I fell madly in love with working out with the weights and all the stuff. And I was really kind of impressed with all that. So I kind of stayed with it. I stayed with it. Yeah. When I saw that picture of you, I thought, wow. If, yeah. if he didn't well, work at WED, he should have just been a bodybuilder. I don't know. There was a, a bunch of us who got together and loved working out, so we had a good time. <laughs> so you mentioned your mom signed you up for this gym. How instrumental uh, was your mom, especially in nurturing you as an artist into ultimately what brought you to Disney? Well, she couldn't have done a better job. My mom supported me and backed me all the time, and I think that's great because... A lot of times, if a kid is a little artist, the mom and dad don't necessarily want him to be a, an artist. They want him to be a lawyer or something, you know. But my mom loved the fact that I like to draw, and so she supported me 100%. In fact, she, she got me to go to Chenard uh, Art Sue when I was 16. Wow. So I went there for six Saturdays when I was 16. Really, tell him about right. She wrote a letter. <clears throat> oh yeah. A letter to oh yeah, yeah. When I was sixteen, she wrote a letter to Walt, and said that my son was interested in coming to work for you, and and I I think she got something back from me, whether it was from Walt or not, I don't know. But she did tell me that they did re- they did return her a little letter or an a, 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 a answer to it. Yeah, I remember reading about that in your book. It's kind of a cute story, and oh uh, good. It was one of those stories where you just feel like, wow, his mom was just so into this. And like you just said, there's a lot of parents out there that do want their kids to be lawyers or doctors or engineers yeah, because yeah. that's where the money is. You know, you want to go where the money is. 
But we live in a world right now where you're seeing a lot of younger kids take control of their life uh, and just do what they want to do, really. They're molding their own futures. And it's almost, I I feel like that's what you did very early on. Oh, God, uh, yes. Because of the fact that uh, you had that support system, uh, you really did that from a very young age. Yeah. Let's jump a little bit uh, forward here. And uh, before you were working for Disney, you joined WED in 1952, correct? Right. And uh, before you were doing that, you were at a factory. I worked at a ceramic factory. I was was the head dipper. The head dipper at a ceramic factory. The reason I was the head dipper because I was the only dipper. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember reading at one point that when you actually got the offer to go work at Disney, it was a huge pay cut for you moving from the ceramics factory to go to Disney, right? Yeah, cut cut me in half. You know, I was making $75 a week in there, and they wanted to hire me at $30 a week. But it was, again, your mother that was... Yes, yes. Yeah, I went to my mom because I told her, I said, I don't know whether I can afford to work for Disney. And she said, you always want to work there, honey. She says, go for it, and it'll take care of itself. Because she really believed in that whatever you want to do, you just got to do it. So I did. And you did. And we're all glad that you did. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, but you also needed to supplement that with other jobs. Can you describe some of the other work that you did? Yeah, I worked uh, helping a friend of mine build sewer manholes. And what I did, when they build a manhole, it's just a hole in the ground. And one of the guys has to go down and start mortaring like a chimney. And so my job was to be up above and lower the bricks and mix the mud and lower them all to him. So it was one hell of a job, I'll tell you that. Okay, so we're starting to get down to the bottom of where most of those muscles came from. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do do know that one day we were in a canyon, and we were working so, it was so hot and hard that I actually collapsed. Oh. No, a heat stroke got me, and uh, luckily the guy I was working for went out and got a six-pack of uh, 7-Up and came back and made me drink the whole six-pack and then I climbed underneath his truck and laid there for the rest of the afternoon. So I did pay my dues. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. <laughs> All right. So when you were part of Disney, you were originally hired as an in-between artist. And you had a chance to work on some of Disney's most iconic films from that era, including Peter Pan, Lady in the Tramp, 101 Dalmatians, Sleeping Beauty. Uh, right. And you assisted Eric Larson. Can you describe right. a little bit what it was like working with uh, Disney legend Eric Larson? Well, it was incredible. I mean, he was the sweetest man that was ever put on this earth. And it's, the, the interesting thing about it is that when I was working on Sleeping Beauty, and he was the art director on Sleeping Beauty, well, my, the fellow, the animator I worked for, had had to always take his scenes, uh, once they were made into little prints to look at, for the uh, the director to look and review all the drawings and the scenes. And uh, he did. He took one of my scenes in that I had done all the uh, cleanups on and everything. And he came back and told me, he said, well, we showed it to Eric, and he really wasn't too happy with it. (laughs) I thought, if Eric Larson doesn't like my work, I might as well quit. And uh, so I just took it in stride. And then the next thing I know, a few months later, I've, I've been asked, do you want to work for Eric Larson as his assistant? 
And I thought, Jesus Christ, how the hell did he pick me to be his assistant when when he wasn't too happy with one of the scenes I did? And I never did find out from him about why he picked me. Oh, but we wow. got to be real. We got to be real close. We became very close. He must have seen something in you that he really uh, appreciated he and did. admired. I think he did. Yeah. Well, the one thing I do know is I always had a lot of energy. And uh, I know that that's one thing that Walt saw in me because he, he told one of the, the head of the model shop one time, he says, that kid's got a lot of energy. And that's before I even, you know, talked to him. So I think my energy level kind of showed up a little as well as my imagination, you know. Were you, um, were you full of energy when you were a child as well? Yeah, I was always full of energy. Because <laughs> uh, I know that... I know there's a lot of parents that see that in their children now, and they think, just sit down. Was was that how you were growing up, where you kind of drove your mom nuts with how much energy you had? Yeah. Well, when I was a kid in school, I ran everywhere. I never walked. <laughs> I ran, you know, which was to catch the bus or come home from school or whatever. I was constantly running. And that's when I tried out for track. And they, I ran the 660. Uh, for the first time and got up and, and threw up. And I thought, well, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I, I started playing, jumping in the high jump. So I, I, I got my letter making, uh, doing high jumping because oh, very cool. I didn't want to run and get sick again. I don't blame you. I, I walk, I, I've been walking a lot because I've had this whole resurgence of being healthy myself and, uh, I, I don't run at all. It makes me completely sick. So I know exactly yeah. what you're saying. Well, later on, when, when I was working at WED towards the latter years, when I was in my 50s, uh, a bunch of us decided we'd run after after work. So we ran. There was a track. It was a little, uh, you know, where the horses go, a little horse uh, trough of a round. It was, three, it was three miles long or whatever. So we used to go and run every night after work. So I used to love running when I was in my 50s, for God's sake. So wow. I did continue on. Well, maybe in my 50s, I'll like it too. I just know I don't like it now. <laughs> yeah, the good news is I used to run when I was 50. The bad news is I can hardly walk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so while you were working at WED uh, and you were uh, part of the animation department, uh, there was a, a couple of stories that I remember where you walked into somebody's office and saw a pencil clip propeller. Can you describe what you saw and how that eventually turned into this giant project that we know as the Tower of the Four Winds. Sure. <laughs> uh, the gentleman's name was Waithel Rogers. He was a, a, a assistant animator, and I was doing in-betweens for him, and I went into his office one. Of course, I was always fascinated with kinetic sculpture. Anyway, little things that moved. And I went into his office one day, and on the lamp that was over his desk, he had a little kneaded eraser, and he had a push pin put in it, and then he made a little paper clip. Well, not a paper clip, but he made a little clip on it that was a little spinning propeller. And I was totally fascinated by it. And I said, Waithel, how did you do that? And he said, I can't tell you, it's a secret. So I said, oh, okay. So I went back. I did know that the clip he was using was a clip that held the erasers in the black wing pencil. So I went through so many goddamn pencils <laughs> trying to get that propeller to work. And I couldn't get it to work because I was using a nail to make the dent. And a nail was not what you're su supposed to use to make the dent. I didn't know that at the time. So after driving Waithel crazy for about a month, he finally says, I'll tell you what, I'll sell it to you. So I actually bought that propeller from him for a penny. He sold it to me for a penny. 
And then I said, okay, now that I own the propeller, tell me the secret. He says, the secret is to use a ballpoint pen to make the dent because that's a smooth, curved surface that, that, that rides on the push pin. And all these, prior to that, I was using nails. Well, nails would just cause little creases in it and then your push pin would get stuck in the creases. So I got that and um, I was so proud of it that I decided to make a uh, uh, helicopter out of it. And the nice thing about it was when you were in animation, we had tremendous air conditioning. And if you held the propeller up next to the wall, you'd get the propeller to spin like crazy. Nice. So I built a little cardboard you know, a uh, helicopter with this little propeller going. Well, one of the kids from the uh, art props department said, geez, really, that's kind of neat. How'd you do that? I says, I'll tell you. I won't sell it to you. I'll tell you. So I told him, and then a few days later, he says, I made one. I said, you did? He says, come on and take a look at it. Well, what he did was he had taken the little clip and he cut out some uh, circular little out of, out of colored paper and glued him onto the clip, and so his propeller was bigger than mine, and that was very disturbing. So I decided, well, Jesus Christ, if you can make them like that, then I'll do that. So then I started building all these damn propellers and filling my room with them, and I had more goddamn fun doing that. You can't <laughs> believe it. In fact, the other, the other animator that I was in a room with got real intrigued by it, so he started helping me build propellers at the same time. So I ended up with about 30 propellers in my room. That's great. And the interesting thing about it was uh, a friend of mine, T. He, who was a guy that worked with Walt way, way back when, he says, you know, Roley, you should show, you should have those propellers in the studio library because the library is was where guys could come and put their paintings in, have little art shows and sell their paintings. So I said, oh, okay. So I signed up to have my propellers, some of my artwork and some of the mosaics I did, as well as a mobile I did. So I had this little show with all my propellers in it. In fact, I have an 8mm film of that shell. Oh, and wow. It's in, yeah, it's in my, uh, it's, in, it's in my little film that, they're doing, that they did on me, so it's kind of neat. Cool. Is that about the time you started doing the painted rocks? Oh, yes, it was. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was doing everything that everybody else was doing. I think that was the thing that was so beautiful. Walt asked me one time, he said, where do you get all your ideas? And I said, from you, sir. He said, what do you mean? I said, every room that I'm in with different guys, I learn from them. And one of the rooms I was in with this one fellow, he was painting on rocks. So I said, I got to paint on rocks too. <laughs> so I, you know, I did everything I could and learned everything I could from the guys I worked with in animation. And uh, you just mentioned that whenever you were with somebody, you tried to learn from them. Uh, was it true that at one point when you were in a meeting with Walt and other Imagineers that for almost three years you said nothing because all you wanted to do was observe him? Yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to listen to him. You know what was interesting? He, When you first meet him, he's so damn powerful when he walks in the door. <laughs> you don't want to say anything. You want to go out the door. And, it's, and he's not like that at all. He turned out to be a, just a sweetheart of a guy to work with. But when you've never worked with him before, he was Walt Disney, and it was a little bit spooky at that time. So I'd say the first two to three years, I didn't say a word. <laughs> but what I did do was I did notice the body language of all the other guys that were in the room. And I did notice that some of the guys were always singing and dancing for Walt, 
and I didn't think that what they were doing was too cool. But I look at Walt, and Walt was accepting it. And I thought, God, this is incredible that he should say, what the hell are you talking about? No, he didn't. He he loved his guys, and he knew that no matter if a guy made a dumb statement, some of the other guys in the meeting would pick up that statement and do something with it. So it was a beautiful process to to learn how to learn from other people. It seems like... You were very matter-of-fact with Walt, and just in general, you were a very matter-of-fact person. Uh, was there anybody else there that could be uh, as direct with Walt and not put on the show that you were talking about right now? No, no, no. There was, there was the guys that had worked with Walt for 20 years, but they still had so much respect for him, and they were very careful in what they said. So they were very cautious with him. But I... Um, for some reason, felt very comfortable with him. Once I started, you know, entering into the conversations, which took a while, and then it got to the point to where um, after a meeting, I want to make sure that I understood what he said. And so I started sitting right next to him and uh, just to make sure that I'd understand that. And when the meeting was over with, sometimes I'd always grab his, his coat or his sleeve and say, well, sorry, I want to apologize for this, but really, what, what is the direction that we're trying to do go here? And he'd sit there and turn to me and say, Rolly, he said, now, this is kind of what I have in mind. And he'd take the time to be real sweet and take me through it. And I was always real thrilled because the other guys had already left the room. And then sometimes he'd say, I don't know. <laughs> so it was It was one of those things that he was very honest with me and I was very honest with him. And was that honesty part of what you describe? Uh, what you described as Walt's magic charm? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When you originally moved over to Wed from the animation department and you started working on these projects, what was the biggest shift in working mentality that you ended up dealing with? Well, uh, the interesting thing about it was I had already been aware of of WED because I used to hang out at the model shop. And that's what WED was. WED was where Walt designed and came up with everything because he had to see him in models. And I used to kind of hang out there. So I got a feel for for the going being in the model shop and knowing what he wanted. So I already uh, had a feel for that when I went to WED. But the, the greatest story of all about going to WED was the fellow that was the head of animation department at that time uh, called me in and said, um, would you like to go to work for WED? And the guy said, oh, God, yes, because I'd been thrilled. I, I really knew that animation was not my end for me to do that. I had no desire to be an animator, yeah, but I was. I did have the desire to be a designer. So I said, sure. Well, the fellow that said that they were going to move me to WED said, you know, Roland, he says, you must have been a diamond in the roof because you had the worst portfolio of anyone that was ever hired in animation. And I thought, well, okay, that's, a, that's okay. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> At least I got the friggin' job. <laughs> yes, there's hope for me yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you were working at WED, what would you describe the work process uh, as, and what was the average time to design attractions? Well, first of all, you did whatever you were told to do. And I never knew what the hell they were going to tell me to do. And the good news is John Hench, the head art director, and I got along real well. And uh, anytime I was asked to do something and I didn't have a clue what to do, I went to John. I said, John, what do I do? 
And so John really taught me the formula. Uh, first of all, you do your homework. Get to understand the subject of whatever it is you're going to do, and you take it from there. And uh, so I, I had him as a mentor, and it was so beautiful because I think I was the only one that ever went to John because nobody would go to John and say, what do I do? Everybody had to pretend like they knew what they were doing. And uh, in most cases, they didn't, <laughs> but they were afraid to say that. You know what I mean? And I just, I was just a dumb kid that said, I, I want to know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, it's funny. You see that in today's workplace a lot. Um, I, I, I've seen it for years where people are just afraid and then projects just get prolonged for months and months when if you just if people did what you did and just went and asked one question, what is this supposed to be? You yeah. you get a clear vision of where you're supposed to be going. Well, I learned so much. You know, first of all, getting back to learning from Walt, sitting in those meetings with Walt, for like two or three years and not say anything. I listened to every damn thing that was said. And the one thing I learned more than anything else from Walt was the big picture. He knew the big picture. He knew what the project was going to look like when it was finished, when we hadn't even started it. And I think the Tiki Room is a good example of it. He knew exactly what the Tiki Room was going to be. And we're sitting there looking at each other and we're saying, oh, little birds are going to chirp to birds, you know, <laughs> and the next thing we know, a couple months later, we've got the bird, we did the, the Enchanted Tiki Room. We did it in three months. In three months. Is is that yeah. the fastest an attraction's ever been designed? Yeah, but that was because when you're working with Walt, whatever the decisions were made by Walt, you went straight ahead, so there was nobody saying, well, let's take another look at that, or I'm not too sure about this. No, if Walt was there, it went just as smooth as glass. Wow. I can't imagine just from concept to design to execution in 90 days putting together an entire attraction, which originally started as a restaurant, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you take a look at Small World. We designed and built the whole goddamn thing in a solid at the World's Fair in six months. Ooh. I mean, stop. Nothing's ever been done of that size and scope since then. It's such a large project, and it oh, was something yeah. brand new that hadn't been done before, which is uh, yes, mind-boggling. So let's talk a little bit about the World's Fair. Uh, when you were working there, you got a chance to work on, like you said, It's a Small World, which you worked on with Mark Davis and Mary Blair. You designed the Tower of the Four Winds, and you even had a chance to work uh, at the Ford Pavilion with Bob Gurr. Tell us a little bit about the craziness of designing things for the World's Fair. Well, it was, uh, again, we were working on no time frames. We had to get stuff done immediately. And because of that, the, the freedom of design was incredible. I mean, whatever you came up with and Walt went along with it, you built the goddamn thing. So, I mean, it was it was an incredible time to work. And the World's Fair was a, was a good example. And none of us knew that whatever we were doing for the World's Fair was going to be brought back and put into Disneyland. Walt knew that, but he never told us. So it was kind of a crazy time frame. I I actually designed and built all the toys that were there, and there was only th over 300 of them. And I had never done anything like that before in my life. And I don't know, I came up with the idea that they should be paper mache. So Jack Furgis, another fellow, and I, and a, and a little gal, we started making the toys. And probably within, I'd say, two or three weeks, we had 30 people building all those toys. Whoa. Under those under those uh, parameters of doing it like uh, paper mache. 
Wow. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the gag that some of the other workers played on you guys with the boats on It's a Small World? <laughs> yeah, we had other people did gags on us. Yeah, we came to work one day, and they got over to uh, the Kodak Pavilion that had this little pond with all these koi fish in it. And they took the koi fish out and put it in our trough. And so when we came to work, there was all these koi fish swimming around in the trough. And then they got those out of there. And the next morning we came in and they put super suds into the trough. And so we had <laughs> uh, uh, soap foam that was probably four feet high going throughout the entire ride. So <laughs> so uh, when you were on It's a Small World, uh, you had a chance to work with Mary Blair. And you actually stayed with her while you were in New York, correct? Yeah. Uh, describe Mary Blair and just your time with her for a little bit. Well, this is a two-hour answer. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to try to edit it down. First of all, you have to understand something. When I was in animation, I'd seen Mary's work in the backgrounds at different parts of animation, and I was very much aware of Mary. And I fell madly in love with her and her style because she was very, she was very stylized. Everything she did was stylized. And as uh, there was a term that we used to use in animation called moldy fig. And moldy fig came from uh, Ward Kimball. Moldy fig meant drawing them like Snow White's or like, you know, uh, you know the, excuse me, the uh, other animated films that we were doing back in the 30s. And so Mary style was far more contemporary than that. And so she was not moldy fake. And so it was interesting because Walt loved her and he was he was loved her style because it was fresh and it was new and it was colorful. So I fell in love with all of that. And then when I found out I was going to work with her, I just thought I died and gone to heaven. I couldn't believe it because she worked with paint right out of the tube. And that's the way I worked. I worked with straight colors. I didn't mix my paint or she didn't mix her with white or black or anything else. No, no, it was just straight out of the tube. Wow. So she and I got along just great. We had a good time. She had a great sense of humor. She had great stories to tell me, because she used to tell me stories about Walt clear back in the 30s and what it was like for her growing up in the studio. Wow. Uh, I remember reading a story, and, and I have to ask you, are you a fan of magic? Oh, yes, I am, uh, by the way, yeah. What is I, your favorite type well, of magic? Well, I started learning magic when I was nine years old. A kid from across the street was a was a little guy studying to be a magician, and he used to call me over when I was nine and say, "I got to show you this latest trick." So I fell madly in love with magic, and it's always been my hobby. In fact, I still have a lot of the magic I did when I was in high school. Wow. Don't have all that stuff. The reason I brought it up was because um, in the book you mentioned that you had sat down and you were teaching Mary Blair's boys some magic tricks uh, yeah. while you were there. Oh yes, yes, yeah, yeah. We yeah. Well, I I stayed with Mary and her family for two or three nights once when I was living back there during the fair, and her two sons. We were sitting after dinner on the floor, and I got a deck of cards out and I started showing the, the boys uh, magic. And they fell madly in love with it. Well, it turned out I, I spent about three hours with Oak's kids teaching the magic. And, and Mary said that they absolutely loved it. They thought that, she said, you spend more time with my son than anybody else. She said, I really appreciate that. Wow. What was your favorite type? Coin magic, card magic? Uh, probably card. 
I ended up, you know, uh, spending a lot of time with the cards. I think the one thing that this gets back to the way I design, I learned that when you did a card trick, it was going to do a card trick. But how can you take that card trick to the next level? Like you pick a card, bring it back, and then you say, no, pick two cards. No, pick three cards. So I was always taking one step higher with whatever I was learning. And the same thing was happened with uh, my designs. I always try to go way beyond, always uh, up the ladder. Yeah, it's funny. Growing up, I was always a huge fan of magic as well. And in the last 15 years, uh, I was I was such a huge fan that I started trying to perform it as well. So alongside all these Disney history books, I probably have about 60 to 75 magic books that were written by Di Vernon and Scarney and all these magicians from back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, card magic was my favorite as well. So maybe if, if I get a chance to see you in person one day, maybe we can go back and forth with some card tricks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't done it in a while. Yeah, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. Um, I think one of the best magic shows I ever gave was I was working with the Sultan of Oman designing a show that went into his fort in Fort Jalali in, in Oman. And I was working for this very, very wealthy man that hired me to design this uh, show for them uh, in, the, in the fort. And so um, we were sitting at the dinner table one night. There was like 30 of us. And the night before, I'd spent uh, with one of the gentlemen that worked there and I had shown his, uh, he had kind of a, a, a good friend that he brought over. And so I showed him some card tricks. And so this uh, fellow said at the dinner table that night when, when we were having the, the big, big dinner, he says, you know, if you're really good, Rolly will show you some card tricks after dinner. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? I mean, you know, he's just trying to be a wise ass. <laughs> well, anyway, what happened was we all had to get leave and go to the beach. We got down to the beach, and there was this huge, big series of carpets and pillows and everything. And there was, uh, I don't know, there must have been about 20 of us. That was secretaries and, and different people that worked in the government for him. But right in the middle of it was two decks of cards. And I thought, oh, you know, and I'd been drinking like crazy. I mean, I was half ripped. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I've got to do card tricks. Well, the one thing I learned a long time ago is when you're going to do card tricks, for people that you don't know, the first thing you do is when you go to shuffle the cards, you spin them all over the room. So it looks like you don't have a clue what you're doing. And that's what I did. Well, everybody started laughing like, oh, my God, he's going to show us the card trick. And then I did the best card trick I've ever known that I learned a long time ago. And that shut them all up. <laughs> so then I went I went for about an I used to go be at goal for an hour on card tricks. And the next day, Dr. Zawali, who had, been, had had that dinner, came up and he came over to me and he says, oh, by the way, Rolly said, um, you're, my secretary really liked your card tricks. <laughs> so my thank you was my secretary liked your card tricks. Well, I guess it all worked out in the end, right? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> you ended up leaving the Disney company in 1970. And at that point, you had a chance to work on some other uh, major theme parks. You got to work at Busch Gardens, um, the Ringling Brothers, Circus World. And you even designed Knott's um, Berry Tales at Knott's Berry Farm here yeah, in Buena Park. Yeah. Uh, what was that like, moving away from Disney and doing these other projects on your own? Well, I think uh, 
working for Disney and doing what you did gave you a tremendous amount of confidence. Uh, for some reason, I had I'd learned the confidence from working with them and all the different people. So I wasn't afraid of anything. You know, I was fearless. And so when I got a chance to do the Berry Tales, there was a lot of ideas that I had come up with that uh, they wouldn't accept at Disney. They did. They believed that if you did a dark ride, it had to be done in, in UV lighting. I kept wanting to add uh, incandescent lighting, and they said, no, it's all mag- It's all black light. And so I thought, oh, okay. Well, when I did the Berry Tales, I mixed UV lighting and the uh, black light. And it, excuse me, and I actually proved that it really worked beautifully. So I was very proud of all the things that I had learned that I got a chance to do that I hadn't done before. So that was great. I had a ball doing the fairy tales. Did you, uh, knowing that you had uh, created this museum of the weird years before, that unfortunately never actually saw itself as an attraction? Did you ever think about building something like that uh, on your own? Or was it just as the projects came up for you? No, not on my own, not at all. <laughs> That's left for somebody else to do. Okay. From all the stuff that you've worked on, what would you say your favorite project has been? My favorite project? Well, this is beautiful. I think it probably boils down to the Tower of the Four Winds. Because like Marie said, it's the one thing that you did that wasn't Disney. It wasn't. It was something that you created and it came from that stupid little propeller. So I think the best thing I ever did was the Tower of the Four Winds. Uh, I remember you had talked a little bit about how when you first saw the tower, you didn't like it at all. Oh, yeah. why didn't you like it? What what ended up happening? Well, basically, uh, that's another kind of a long story. I designed, I built a model, a half inch scale model of the tower. And that model was sent down to the engineers, and then they engineered it. And they designed the one that, that that got built. And, of course, mine was very delicate. And when I got the chance to see the finished one, everything had gotten fat. Things that were like six inches in diameter became 16 inches in diameter. So when I first looked at it, I just thought, gee, this is a piece of crap. And that's when Walt came. I had to drive Walt down to take a look at this thing, uh, this tower. And Walt turned to me and says, well, he says, what do you think? And I said, I think it's a piece of crap. Now, who tells Walt Disney that what they design is a piece of crap? Well, that just shows you the relationship that he and I had. And he was so cute because it can't be a piece of crap, really. It cost me 200000 But he knew he knew exactly where I was coming from. And he says, you know, Roly, when these things take place, you have to support the people that are going to build it. So he was really sweet with me because he knew why I was pissed off. And uh, so by the time he and I got finished talking, I said to him, yeah, I think, I think it's good. I think it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you still kind of tinker around and build things on your spare time? No. No, I'd like to drink a little once in a while. We have a glass of wine every night. <laughs> do you tinker with and build things? No, I don't tinker. I was trying to be funny. <laughs> okay. I, I got it. I appreciated it. <laughs> he got it. Well, I thought he misunderstood. No. <laughs> I got it. We do the yeah. same thing. We start it off every podcast like, with beer, so. I think he thought, I thought he thought you said, do you like to sit around and drink? <laughs> no, no, no. I knew what he said yeah, about tinkering. 
Uh, when you were working on Berry Tales, Rolly, uh, was it your own company that you started? Because you kind of turned it into a family affair, right? You brought in your, your son and everybody to work on it? Yeah, yeah. What I was it like having your own company to do that? I've always enjoyed my own companies. I've had them two or three times, and I love them. Uh, how was it like for you knowing uh, when your son Chris was offered to work as an Imagineer and following your footsteps? I thought it was great. I thought it was great. You have to understand something. That poor kid had to grow up underneath me, not only as my son, but as the things that he'd like to do to please me and things I like to do to please him. So we had a beautiful relationship. I remember when he was just a little guy and he liked to make toy, make models. I used to go out and buy models for him all the time because I wanted to get him perpetuated like my mom did. So if he was interested in building uh, models, I wanted him to build models. So I had him building models all the time. Now, there's a cute story behind that. I bought him a model one time. It was a little hot rod car. And he gave me the, he got to the instructions and he, he got to the instructions and uh, didn't quite understand them. Well, giving it to me, I didn't understand a damn word of it. Well, Jack Fergus that, that we worked with was a beautiful model builder. And so <laughs> Chris would say, why don't you take the, the plans to, to, to big Jack and, and have him tell you what we're supposed to do. So I went the next day and I said, Jack, for God's sake, tell me what this damn print says. So he read it, and then he explained it to me, and then he wrote a little note to Chris. So then I became sort of a mailman between Big Jack and, and my son about passing these questions back and forth. Well, at least you had some kind of instruction, because have you ever tried to build something from Ikea? <laughs> it's the worst experience ever. Ikea. No, no, God, no. It's no, the no. worst experience ever. At least, uh, at least you had a translator, right? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. His dad did all that. <laughs> so, but you know, everything I ever designed for Disney was built from a model that I built. So I was a model builder for all the things that I designed for Disney. So that's what, that was a formula. Walt wanted to see everything in model before he would go ahead with it. So I do know that there was uh, what we used to do what called quick and dirty models. And that was just to show Walt the volume of something. And I know I did a, a quick and dirty little model of a building outside a small world that was by the Bank of America telling, you know, what the Bank of America is all about. And we were, I was giving the presentation to Walt about where this went. It was just a little, little cardboard box. And they had engineer turn to Walt. He says, you know, Walt, he says, it doesn't look too sturdy to me. And he turned to John and says, John, he says, we're not going to make it out of cardboard. So this, this was a good fun good time. That's awesome. I've heard that story so many times. <laughs> yeah. Funny. I just, I, just how somebody could think that it's going to be cardboard just uh, kind of blows you up in your head. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in in 1996, you ended up just officially retiring and moving on. Uh, and then in 2004 is when Disney bestowed you with the honor of being a Disney legend. Uh, yes. How was that presented to you, and what went through your mind when this came up? <laughs> well, I got a letter in the mail about wanting me to get an award. And I thought, I don't want any awards. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to go. And uh, my son really got upset with me. He says, you got to go, Dad. And I said, I do. 
And he said yes, and, and Marie said the same thing. God damn it, Roland, you're going to go. I did not. No, I know. I'm just teasing him. <laughs> I have to tease with her. I have to make sure she's listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, um, so we went, and it probably was one of the highlights of my life to be able to stand up there and get a legend award because I'll be honest with you, I didn't believe I or, or had earned one. I remember all the people I worked with and everything. Said, Why the hell did they pick me? Well, it hasn't been since I've gone back and looked at everything that I've really done. I thought, oh, yeah, I do deserve it. <laughs> if it means anything, I do believe that you deserve it. Uh, I know that it's many years after you got it, but uh, every day that I walk into my office, Rolly, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, I met you in person for the first time. It was at the signing that we did, or that that we did, like I was involved, uh, <laughs> that you had at Beach Ball Comics for the Seekers of the Weird comic book that came out. And uh, I remember I showed you uh, this picture of your window, and yeah. you signed it for me, and it's on my wall, and every day that I walk in, you are one of the people, uh, at least your name is what I look like. It's one of the things that drives me and inspires me to continue doing and just keep going with what my ultimate goals are. So yeah, uh, not just with what you did for Disney, but just how many people you've inspired. You know, I just want to say thank you because everything yeah. that you've done has, has touched a lot of us. Yeah, we get letters from, <clears throat> from people every week telling us how I've touched them and I haven't a clue how I touched them. I just did my, I just did a job, you know, and I was in love with it. And I think that the thing that they read, really read for me is how much I really cared about what I did and that I was very proud of it in my own way. So it's kind of hard. I don't like to have an ego, but once in a while I have to say, Rolly, you were damn good. <laughs> so uh, if you could offer any advice for anybody that's just trying to follow their dreams, do what they want to do, and not settle for the status quo what would you say to those people right now? Yeah, well, the advice is probably the same thing that my mom would say. You just got to believe in what you're going to do. And the one thing that is kind of interesting, always believe in your crazy ideas and always color outside the lines. That was my philosophy and everything that I did. And I think if you take that approach, no matter what business you want to get into, I think that's going to be a, a good little formula to work to. That's awesome. Thank you for that. All right. Well, for everybody listening right now, uh, I hope you've enjoyed our time talking with Rolly today. Uh, his book is called It's Kind of a Cute Story, and he wrote it with our good pal Jeff Heimbuck. So if you have not picked up the book, there will be a link to the Amazon uh, ordering page for that. It is a wonderful, wonderful book with tons of stories about Rolly and working at WED, growing up all that stuff. Uh, and I'm also going to put a link for all of the supplemental audio that he did because he had more cute stories, volumes one through six, where he talks from the Imagineers that he worked with all the way to working at Knott's Berry Farm. And those were amazing to listen to as well. Okay, good. So. Well, I, you know, I love talking about all this good stuff. And I think the thing is, I'm just kind of honest and it just kind of comes out the way it's supposed to. So, you know, you just have to be yourself. Yeah. Well, Rolly, I really appreciate yours and Marie's time today. Um, I just, uh, again, I want to say thanks because uh, I I'm just very thankful that I got a chance to talk to you today. 
Well, you're very welcome, Hazen. And when you sent your picture, we did remember for sure yeah. about the book signings. Oh, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I uh, remember it well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank I you. really enjoyed it. It was a good time today. Well, I hope we get a chance to do it again soon. Okay. All right. Thank you, Hazen. Well, thanks again. Thank you. you guys have a great afternoon. Thank you. You yeah. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys, that is going to be it for this episode. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this chat that I had with Rolly. Uh, I was super thankful that we weren't able to meet in person, but uh, they were gracious enough. Uh, he and Marie were gracious enough to you know, set up this phone conversation uh, with him. And uh, yeah, there were so many things that I wanted to touch on that I didn't get a chance to, but I wanted to be respectful of Rolly's time. And uh, hopefully we get a chance to do this again soon. I had a lot of fun and um, maybe next time we can bring up some of the other stuff, uh, like the Museum of the Weird. That was one thing that I wanted to bring up a little bit more so he can talk a little bit more about that. But again, you know, Hopefully another time we'll get a chance to to get into that. But uh, I mentioned it just a bit ago. Uh, check out the book. Check out the audio file. All the links are going to be in the blog post for the episode. Check it out. He produced them all with Jeff. And Jeff did an amazing job of compiling these stories and just uh, putting this audio out. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to them, uh, pick up a copy. They're available on Amazon and CD Baby. So the links will be up. But definitely get It's Kind of a Cute Story. Uh, it's just a treasure trove of stories. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this chat with Rolly. Until next week, here is to Beers, Cheers, and Make It Ears. Have a fantastic week, everybody.